I am so excited to be here. I think First Peter continues to be one of those books that when you steep yourself in it, um, it just gets better every time. And um, this morning we're going to be in First Peter chapter 2, um, kind of looking at maybe the first 10 verses, um, but really... Uh, as I've just been with the Lord this morning, just kind of asking for his blessing. I kind of have a sense that he wants me to direct more attention to a particular part of the passage, verses 9 and 10. And so we're going to do that with the hopes that I don't wreck this train and that we um, stay on point with what God has for us this morning. But I want to focus in, just as we open in prayer, on this first... uh, Whenever I come in in worship, worship is warfare, right? You're warring against spiritual principalities that are uh, seeking to destroy and and dislodge us from the joy that we have in Christ. And so when we come to worship, we don't just sing songs. We don't just uh, stand up here and think it's a wonderful thing that, uh, that we all can sound good. That's not the goal of worship. The goal of worship is to raise God high. The goal of worship is to exalt the name of Jesus Christ as power and authority over everything, as the only object, the only person, the only thing worthy of our worship. That, that's the goal. The goal of worship is to say, all of my affection, all of my devotion is for you, Jesus. That's why we worship. We don't worship to sound good. We don't worship for four-point harmony. We don't worship for hymns. We worship for Jesus. And so this morning... Um, as, I'm, as I'm singing, one of the lines of the song just stuck out. My shame was a ransom you faithfully bore. Isn't that awesome? That the shame that comes with our sin, with the knowledge of our sin, is something that he faithfully swallowed in obedience to the Father. He took it on himself. If that's not something that's worthy of worship, I don't know what is. And so when we come this morning, we want to have a right heart before God that says, God, I'm amazed that you saved me. Not, I'm a great recipient for salvation. (laughs) I'm amazed that you saved me, God. I am amazed that you saw me before the foundation of the world and you said, I want to set my love on that guy. That's incredible. And that's worthy of worship. So join with me in prayer as we just humble our hearts before our King. God, you are so good. So this morning we come and we just ask your favor here. We ask, Holy Spirit, that the words that you wrote through um, all these different authors over 1,500 years, and uh, you revealed and you put on a page for us to have as a definitive revelation of who you are. We, we pray that our hearts would just be subject to that, that we would surrender our motives, that we would surrender our desires, that we would surrender our hopes and dreams, and we would say, do what you will, God. So we just come subject to you and motivated by your spirit to carry out all that Christ intended when he went to the cross. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, stand to your feet, grab a Bible. If you don't have one, there's a pew Bible, page 1014. And we're going to give honor to the word of God. Verse... 1, chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in me will not be put to shame. So the honor is for those who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders Rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble and disobey. Sorry, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people but now you're God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Have a seat. So this morning, the the basic outline is in your notes, but we're going to look at growing up and being built up and speaking up. But if you get nothing, walk away with this truth that our identity in Christ motivates us to proclaim his mercy and his love. So everything that you do, how you carry yourself, the deepest convictions flow from who you believe yourself to be in Jesus Christ. And Peter's going to display that for us very clearly here. And so if I were to look at the first three verses and think of um, maybe a short sentence that kind of summarizes it, you could say that faith in God always, always, is evidenced by fruit. Faith in God is always evidenced by something. People ought to be able to look at your life, ought to be able to see something about yourself that you carry yourself in a way that marks um, yourself for Christ. So he mentions these things that, that you should put away. Now, if you remember in looking at 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12, looked at this idea of suffering and, and how suffering God uses to refine us, to make us look more like Jesus. Remember, uh, the, the goldsmith, he, he refines gold and all the impurities burn to the top and then they're skimmed off. And when he looks down and he looks in the gold, he could see a reflection of himself and that's when he knows it's ready for production. And in the same way, our suffering does something to us that refines us to make us look more like Jesus. It's important. And then the latter part of chapter one, there is this call to holiness. That's not so popular in our day. There's this call to self-restraint. There's this call toward how do you carry yourself? How do you conduct yourself in this world as a result of the fact that these sufferings are present? How do you do that? And Don expounded on that last week. And then this week, he begins chapter 2 by telling us to put away about four or five different things. He talks about this idea of malice. Malice is just a wicked ill will, which none of us has ever experienced towards somebody else. Maybe. Or what about deceit? Deceit is, is something a little bit more crafty, right? Deceit carries with it this connotation of intentional dishonesty. And you're like, well, I didn't lie. Well, yes, but you also didn't tell the whole truth. That's deceit. You know, when I ask you where you were and you can only provide part of the answer and part of the answer is all true, but part of the answer misses about 60%, that's deceit. And so he's telling us as believers who have suffered and are suffering that we are to live out a holiness before God that means you can't be deceitful. 
And then he talks about this idea of hypocrisy. And I guess I would define hypocrisy this way. It's a pretend love for God and people. Hypocrisy is a pretend love for God and others. Because genuine love for God and others always leads to sacrifice, always leads to mercy, always leads to um, calling out the identity that God has placed on that person. But hypocrisy doesn't. Hypocrisy has twisted motive. Hypocrisy misses the mark. Hypocrisy turns things inward. And he's saying that we need to put those things away. And then he also talks about this idea of envy. And I would define envy as as just a resentful discontent. Let me just park here for a moment on discontent. Um, How many of us on on a regular basis wake up as we're headed to work or to school or to whatever we have and our first thought is like, this stinks. Grass is always greener on the other side. If I had more pay and less hours, if I had greater friends and less not great friends, and if I was a better athlete and you know, all these different pieces of like there's just this discontent that's swirling within us and Peter is saying, look, man, God purified the gold, skimmed off the crud, looked in the image and he said, I wanted you And so for you to be discontent says that there's something wrong with me. You're like, well, wait a minute. I didn't say that out loud. Didn't have to. You didn't have to. Because if Nehemiah 8 is correct and the joy of the Lord is our strength and somehow I'm always malcontent and I'm always upset and frustrated at my lot in life, guess what I've just missed? I've got everything in Jesus. I've got literally everything in Jesus and I can't find a reason to be happy. And so he's saying that's not the mark of a believer. So you need to be putting away envy so that you're not looking at your neighbor who has a nicer house and a better car and more well-behaved children or whatever it is. And he also says um, to put away slander. Slander is just this piece of backbiting. You know, it's this, uh, I'm going to share with you a prayer request about someone else sort of thing where you realize pretty quickly that you are talking in in pretty much a way to make yourself look a tad better than the person you're talking about. And so he's saying, that's just not the mark of a believer. Your suffering ought to have taught you that by now, but I need to remind you, put away slander. And so maybe here the question is, can, can you locate yourself in any of these? From a truth to life perspective, can you locate yourself on the spectrum at all of of malice, or deceit, or hypocrisy, or envy, or slander. And he says, if you can, and we all can, if you can, then your remedy is to long for pure spiritual milk. And you're like, okay, well, what in the world is that? Well, think of it this way. Maybe in just a very short, simple way. Um, The young infant who is just born and is nursing is milk for him a fringe benefit? Answer the question. No, not at all. What is it? It's life. It's necessity. So, so picture when he says pure spiritual milk, he's saying like you're an infant nursing at your mom and you need that for life. That's how you begin to move past malice and wickedness and envy and slander and is because you long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. And so the picture here is a sustained craving. And so maybe the deepest revelation that we need to have 
is to live by the fullest revelation that we hold. Have you ever thought about that? That everything Jesus Christ went to the cross because of his deepest convictions over and his, and his obedience to his Father was that you would live it out in the fullness. And when we choose not to live it out in the fullness, what we miss. And so we're sitting here saying with great conviction that pure spiritual milk is this, unadulterated, right? If I never have another Christian book or podcast or sermon online to listen to, guess what? That's just fine. Because I've got this. I've got the pure and definitive revelation of Jesus Christ right here. And he will guide me. And he will guide you. And so Peter is calling his people to that. And then he moves from growing up to being built up. Being built up in verses 4 through 8 just really carries this idea that faith in God means we are built together with confidence in Christ. You're like, well, okay, you, you kind of already touched on that a little bit, but maybe think of it this way. Those, those verses he talks about, you know, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So he's saying the, the stone, the cornerstone, the anchor, any builder in here knows that you have to have a measurement off of which everything else comes. And if that measurement, correct me if I'm wrong, Roger, but if that measurement is not true, what happens? Yeah, I mean, your, your walls are going to be wonky, your roof's going to be off, your doors aren't going to close correctly, and you're like, all because of one measurement? Yeah. So if your cornerstone is faulty, if you're not anchored in the right way to the cornerstone, guess what? Your whole life is just going to be a sham. And so he's saying, get it right. Get it right. It's Jesus Christ as the central piece. And if we don't get that right, we're going to miss it. And so he talks about being living stones that we are people who make our truest measurement and our deepest and most final revelation with Jesus. And that's what helps us. And when we abandon him, it's to our own peril. When we don't believe in him, it's to our own peril. And honestly, it's to our own shame, which he addresses next in verse 6. When he says, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I think that's kind of interesting. Because he's quoting from Isaiah 28, verse 16. Now, it's interesting because when, when, he, when he quotes from Isaiah 28, it's not like, uh, if, if you read Isaiah 28, I'll, I'll read it to you. He says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid it as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. And look what he says at the end. Whoever believes will not be in haste. You're like, that's odd. Because I've never really thought of belief and haste together. Haste is just this hurried concept, right? Like, that's how we think of it. But think of it this way. When he says a tested stone, it's the same word that's used in 1 Peter when he says chosen. So Jesus was tested. When you build a bridge, you test it before you send cars across it. Jesus was tested in order to provide a sure foundation. That's why he can say it's a sure foundation. But then he says, whoever believes will not be in haste. 
The Hebrew word for haste is this idea of panic. So read it that way. Whoever believes in me will not be in panic. That's a totally different take, isn't it? That kind of opens our eyes to something that perhaps we could have easily missed. Now consider Peter as he's expressing to these people who are experiencing great suffering. Some of these people are going to be deeply persecuted and they're scattered. So they're not even really near their nearest family. So all of us here in Tremont, like a good chunk of us, our family is near. And so when persecution or difficulty, primarily difficulty, when it arises, what do we do? We lean on our family and it's easy in a sense. Like it's, we're all right here. But Think of these people. They're scattered over, over the, the size of a, a place like Texas-ish in different provinces. And so there's great distance between them and the other like-minded believers. And so Peter is saying, hey, if you believe in me, you won't be in panic. You're like, oh, that's a lot more powerful. That's a lot more powerful for me to grasp when I consider it like that. Because the interesting part is that every one of these readers would have understood the context of Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28 was a rebuke of, of God for Ephraim and Jerusalem. You can look it up. And, and it's a rebuke for their lack of belief, for their, um, their spiritual um, affections being aligned elsewhere on idols and things. And so it's a strong rebuke for that. But think about that just for a minute. When it says it's a, it's a rebuke on Ephraim. Ephraim was um, a son born to Joseph. And Joseph um, was, remember, he was one of the favored sons of Jacob. And he got the robe and we sing the song and, and the kids color the pictures in Sunday school. And like, oh, look, he got a robe. Yeah, but that robe was also dipped in blood later after he was sold into slavery. And he was told that he was, his parents were told that he was dead and gone. His own brothers. So here he is, a dreamer, someone who has great vision. And he's hated by his brothers and those around him. But he's loved and he's honored by his father. Sound familiar? Sound like Jesus just a little bit? And so then what happens is he gets, honestly, he gets rejected by his brothers. He gets sold into slavery. He gets imprisoned. And you're like, what? What in the world? And, and, and the people who are hearing this verse, verse 6 in 1 Peter 2, 6, they're hearing this. They're hearing, oh, Ephraim. Yeah. Do you know what the name Ephraim means? When he names him, it's in Genesis 41, 52. When Joseph names him Ephraim, his name literally means, you have made me fruitful in my land of affliction. Whoa. He had just gotten done being sold into slavery and they were right before the famine of seven years that happens, which the Lord had appointed Joseph in charge of to make sure that the whole nation of Egypt had food. And his own brothers who sold him into slavery are now coming back to him for sustenance and he's giving it to them freely as he slowly reveals his identity to them. Think of Jesus in this picture. Rejected, cast off, in prison, thought to be dead. And he shows up, Jesus, on the scene. And guess who's not seeing Jesus clearly? The Pharisees. The ones who don't think they need him. And so for them, it's like, eh, no big deal. They're missing the whole point. And Jesus is still hand up an offer of life out to them. You have made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. That's powerful stuff. 
So helpful for us to hear. And so maybe that little phrase there where it says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. So think about shame and honor and belief. You only overcome shame with the honor of being connected to Jesus. So what about speaking up? If we, if we have this understanding that Peter has really outlined for us, then we need to begin to understand that our identity in Christ, it motivates us to proclaim his mercy and love. So in verses 9 and 10, probably some of the most powerful in all of chapter 2, we need to understand that faith in God leads to proclaiming his excellencies. And there's kind of three different pieces here that I want to spend a little bit of time on. Um, The first one is going to be identity. Identity is huge. And he says it in verse 9, the first part of verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. A chosen race just simply means that they were people of God's choosing. Now you can go there if you want, but um, I can just read it to you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says this. And we'll start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay, so just for a moment. I had this conversation with one of my children the other day that um, looking out the window and you can see a tree and you can see grass and you know, depending on where you're at, you can see an ocean, you can see mountains. Before any of those things existed, which to us feel eternal, before any of those things existed, God looked and he set his love on me. And if you're here this morning and you have uh, responded in faith to the call of Christ, it's the same for you that he set his love and his affection and his salvation on you before the foundation of the, before anything was created, before he spoke anything into existence, he wanted you. Now the significance of that, the, the, the real power behind that is it's before you did anything good. It's also before you did anything bad. That must mean that who I am in Jesus Christ can never change. It can never falter. It can never slip. It can never somehow be lost. It can never be something that is less than powerful and amazing. And he's saying, you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. It's like, man, he chose me. And there's many in here who this morning would say, like, I I, I don't feel chosen. Have you considered that perhaps... Maybe the understanding of your version of being chosen is being chosen by others for things that don't carry the same weight as what God sees. Whether it's your ability, your skill, your looks, your finances, your status. He's saying you are a chosen race. Nothing you could do about it. I chose you in Christ, before the foundation of the world. 
You didn't do anything to earn it. I'm here. That's awesome. And then he says that you're a royal priesthood. You know, one of the most powerful things that happens at the cross of Christ is not at the cross. It's actually in the temple. What happens in the temple, if you're familiar with the story in Matthew 27, it says that there's a a long, tall, heavy robe or curtain-like, curtain material that is, is separating the holy from the holy of holies. So where everybody was allowed to go versus where only the high priest was allowed to go, the very near presence of God is barred off by this heavy, thick curtain. And you could never go in there unless you had a sacrifice. And only once a year could you go in there. And guess what happens? That curtain is torn in two and access is given and it's wide open. But it's not torn in two from the bottom up, which would indicate a human. How is it torn in two? From the top to the bottom. And so in Matthew 27, we have this picture that the priesthood of believers means, I don't need you to get to Jesus. God has made a way through his own son that I have access into his presence because of the sacrifice of his son, not because of my obedience, not because of the goodness of somebody else. It's because of the goodness of Jesus. And so he says, as a royal priesthood, you have privileged access now and a new purpose. And it's really, quite honestly, it's an invitation to intimacy with the Father. It's an invitation to a relationship that is dynamic and powerful and living and active, not dull, stagnant, and everyday Sunday. It's amazing. Hebrews 10, and I won't go there for sake of time, outlines this. You can read verses 11 through 14. The reason why the old priesthood didn't work is because you had imperfect people standing between God and man. And they could only do sacrifices that lasted for so long because of their sinful state. There needed to be a holy, pure, and lasting sacrifice, and that was found in the perfect son. So you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. The next thing is you're a holy nation. I would put it this way. That means you're a set-apart new humanity. There ought to be nothing as appealing or exciting or engaging as Christian community. There ought to be nothing as inviting as being around other believers who know how to celebrate well, who know how to love well, who know how to bless well, who know how to forgive well, who know how to persevere well. There ought to be nothing as inviting as that. And so the question then becomes, is that really true? Would people look at our church and say that? Would people look at me and say that as a reality? And then he says, you're a people for his own possession. And people who are reading this in the first century, who are getting this letter 30 years after Christ, and and they're they're beginning to endure persecution, but the advancement of this disciple-making movement of Jesus is now beginning to take on Rome, and it's it's gaining attention and traction. And, And he says, you're a people for his own possession. Their mind's first thought would have been to head back to Isaiah chapter 43. And Isaiah 43 is so powerful, but one of the things that it talks about is this idea that I am made, made for praise. 
I am made to praise my Father. When I'm not praising my Father in my conduct, with my mouth, with my thoughts, when I'm not doing that, there is dissonance. There is some cognitive disconnect. There is some problem that begins to happen. And it begins to wreak havoc in our lives. Why? Because you are his possession. All this garbage of live your best life now, all this, it doesn't hold a candle to the best life God has for you. And the problem is we get that all jumbled up. It's too easy to miss it. Um, all right, I'm going to do something really quick. Can I have like 10 high school students come here, please? Just stand up, volunteer, come on stage. Let's go. Make it quick. Got two. Come on, girls. Okay, we're 30% there. Come on. 40. Jeepers. Come on. 50. All right. One, two. Come on. Let's get three more girls. You're tall, dude. Nice work. Yeah. All right, like I guess this will do since the rest of you are too lame to stand up. Okay. Here's, here's what we typically do. We typically, we'll take the tall guy and put him over here, right? And we read, here, hold this Bible. We read 1 Peter 2.9. It says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of possession you know, of God. And, and he reads it and he's like, yes, me. I'm a chosen race. I, but guess what? Like a whole race of people isn't one person. Like, and a holy nation isn't one person, it's people, right? So the real beauty of this is what happens when he takes this and he comes on over here and he has this understanding that Peter is saying this, you are a chosen race. You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a people for his own possession. So that way, when, come here, Moses, when he comes and he begins to struggle, guess what? He has another who says, I'm with you. Look at this picture. <laughs> Go ahead, Stan. So, but consider that. Like, this is the real allure of believing in Jesus Christ. It's not all on your shoulders. It's not something that sits with you to prove. It's not something that is somehow, like, up to you. So when you struggle, you've got someone else next to you who may not be struggling at the same time. But if you're like this, you're like, yes, I am a royal priesthood. Not, not by yourself. God never intended that. He never did. Thanks, guys. You can have a seat. And so that's really where things begin to take shape is we have an understanding. This is what God intends. And so he says that you're going to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, darkness and light all through the scriptures contain this idea of salvation. I'll just read a couple of scriptures here from Acts 26, 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and and a place among them, among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And Ephesians 5.8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 4 and 5 and verse 8 say this, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So darkness and light is contained right here in this passage that Peter is talking about. And he's saying, you are proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So maybe focus a little bit on marvelous or even the the thought of marveling. Have you ever been around somebody who's marveled at something in front of them, something large, something incredible, something just awesome? I remember the first time that I went and I saw Michael Jordan play live. I must have looked like a doofus, right? My chin must have been hitting the floor. I, must, I was sitting in the front row, right? Had good, great, like, courtside seats. I remember sitting there being like, look at that, you know? <laughs> like, this is incredible. I marveled. And so here's the question. Maybe for us to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light, we need to continue to consider what do we marvel at? I've got three different suggestions for what that might be. Do you marvel at yourself? You're like, whoa, Doug, back up. (laughs) Now, do you marvel at yourself? Not, thanks God, I'm pretty sure I deserve salvation. Or, Thank you, God, I am so undeserving. I have no right to be here, but you saved me. I marvel every day when I wake up that I get to be a worker in his kingdom. I marvel every day at his grace toward me in Christ Jesus. I marvel every day that he put his spirit inside me to yearn jealously for Jesus Christ. I marvel at the fact that he saved me. Do you marvel at that? Do you marvel at that? How about this? Do you marvel at the prospects of the gospel? Do you marvel at the fact that um, you have a greater hope and a higher joy and a, and, a, and a higher kingdom awaiting you than what you're presently experiencing? Do you marvel at that? Or how about Christian community? Do you marvel at Christian community? Just this week, we were meeting for our 242, and, and later that night, I got home, and um, I just had some time to think and pray. And I was marveling because there was nothing special, really. We got together and we read through the first chapter of Jonah and we started to talk through a little bit of what it meant and, and we spent time talking one-to-one and praying for one another and, and then all of a sudden, right in the middle of it, the people who were hosting were like, uh, we've got an emergency. Literally had to leave and go to the hospital. And their children were there at home, right? And they just left. I mean, it was like, it all happened in about two minutes, they're out the door. Their three kids are there with all of us. And we're standing there going, uh, what do we do? And so we had the opportunity to pray for them. We circled around and we prayed. And I held the child in my arm. She picked my nose during the prayer. <laughs> right? But it was, it was one of those things where I'm like, God, this is incredible. They didn't even have a concern about leaving their children. They just left. Like, we got something that needs cared for. We got to leave. And I'm laying in bed later that night, and I'm like, man, I marvel at that. Isn't that what it's supposed to be like? Isn't that, it's, it's, it, there's something about knowing that Christian community is something you can rely on in times of a pinch 
to, not just to get you through, but like really minister. It was awesome. So your identity is because you're chosen, you're royal, you're holy, and you're a people who are possessed by God. Your message has everything to do with what you're marveling at. Is his excellency and his calling of you worth it? How about the power? Where do you get the power? Well, clearly, believers in Jesus Christ understand that he placed his spirit inside us as power. But look at verse 10 in chapter 2 when he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is a direct quote from Hosea. Now, if you are not familiar with Hosea, let me give you the two-second snippet. Hosea is a prophet of God who's called to marry a prostitute. You're like, oh, that would stink. (laughs) And yes, it would. But here's, here's what's amazing about that. It's a metaphor. He's saying, I want you to marry her, and then I want you to redeem her back when she's unfaithful. And you're like, sucker punch. That would be horribly hard. And so Hosea, as him and Gomer are, Gomer's a great name, by the way. (laughs) Let's just be honest. And so um, they're having kids. And, And in chapter one, he's naming the kids. And listen to what he says. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name no mercy. Oh, serious? Call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. God's pretty upset. (laughs) And then in verse 7, or sorry, in verse 8, it says, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Could there be anything more devastating to hear than you were chosen in in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22 and all these places that really outline the covenant choice of God of you or of Abraham? And now he's saying, you're not my people. Like, stabbed with a knife, twisted, horrible. But then in verse 23 of chapter 2, he says this. And I will sow for her myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And so Peter is speaking directly to this. When you have your identity straight in who Jesus is, and you understand your message, that you're proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light because of what you're marveling at. Verse 10 caps it all off with this understanding. Here's where the power comes from. The power comes from the fact that you didn't have mercy, and now you do. You weren't my people, and now you are. The power is in Christ because that's the only way you get mercy and are his people. And I think sometimes it's easy to miss that. So if you're here this morning and you're like, I don't know what to do with what's just preached. Um, The first thing is to surrender your heart to God. First thing is to surrender your situation to God. Do you even know him personally? Do you have a walk with God? Do you even know that your, your sin for all time can be forgiven so you can go from no mercy and not my people to mercy and people? Do you know that? Because I would argue that that's one of the first things that you have to do. And the second thing that I would encourage you in is if you're in a space where you're just kind of coasting, 
you can surrender to God afresh. There'll be an elder in the office afterwards who would love to pray with you. I'll hang out here for a few moments if you want to pray and talk about that. Um, But the other thing that's really great is there's a number of people in here who know Jesus. And so if you're sitting next to someone, you can ask them that question. You can receive prayer. You can receive encouragement. But we are a people overall who want to understand how our identity in Christ motivates us to proclaim his mercy and love. God, you are good. And as we wrap up here, we um, come before you humble. And we want to ask ourselves a question. What would it look like if we loved others in the same way that you loved us in Christ? What would it look if we loved others like we love our own children? What would it look like if we really believed the Bible was sufficient in its revelation? What would it look like? Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Now walk with us today as we leave here to really deep down internalize what we've just heard. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.